If you're looking for a way to be a helper during this time, truly one of the best ways to get involved at Mental Health Association Oklahoma is to make a donation. Anything will help us continue to serve our participants during this difficult time. So visit Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Facebook page and donate on the COVID-19 Relief Fund or go to mhaok.org and hit the donate button at the top of the page. So I hope we'll lift up the incarcerated. I hope we'll lift up people experiencing homelessness. I hope we'll lift up our public health and our mental health providers and the people looking out for us in our groceries and our food pantries and just keeping us well. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. And on today's episode, we have Damian Shade who's returning to the podcast, which we're so excited about. And Damien is the criminal justice policy analyst for the Oklahoma Policy Institute. And handling today's interview with Damien is Damien's friend and collaborator, Jacob Beaumont. And Jacob is the Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Director of Criminal Justice Reform. And so uh, you can see why Damien and Jacob are such great collaborators because they really are working to reform the criminal justice system in new and innovative ways. So with all that being said, Damien and Jacob, let's get this thing started. The Mental Health Download starts now. All right, Matt, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Damien. So good to have you back. Thank you for making a, a little bit of time uh, amid the pandemic to, to talk with us about it. Up top, I, I want to ask you something. I'm, I'm asking all of um, my colleagues and, and friends and, and folks I work with, how has your job functionally changed since we started locking down different parts of the state? And uh, can you confirm or deny that your one-year-old is the best coworker you've ever had? <laughs> oh man, I, I, yeah, my one-year-old is, I, I don't know if you will hear her bleeding into this podcast, but she is, as we are speaking, cooing um, intensely <laughs> in her bed. Um, it's supposed to be nap time, um, but she, she likes to let us know how she feels. <laughs> about a mid-afternoon nap uh, for a few minutes every day before she goes down. So yeah, she's wonderful. <laughs> she's wonderful. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, um, Jacob and Matt um, and the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma for just giving me this opportunity to talk about criminal justice issues um, during this remarkable time that we're all living in. Um, it's scary. It's overwhelming. Um I, I just have to start by saying I feel so privileged um, to be one of the Americans who still has a job right now, right? Like my family, we are safe. Um, we are all together in, in our home. Um, our bills are paid. Uh, we have food to eat. Um, so for the 24 plus million Americans who are out of work right now, um, the approaching a million Americans who are, and probably more than that, who are infected um, by COVID-19 and the thousands and thousands, now probably um, over 50,000 Americans who will have, um, will have been died because of the COVID-19 crisis by the time this airs. Um, truly, I, I just want to say I, I feel nothing but gratitude um, for the deep fortune to be in a position to do anything to try and help. Um, and I've been so amazed by the healthcare professionals, the mental health professionals, the, the public services, law enforcement, um, the people in our community who are holding the covenant of our society, you know, to pick kind of a dramatic way to describe it, but just the, the core social compact is being held together by nurses, um, by police officers, by ambulance drivers, by people at food pantries um, and teachers who are working, you know, sometimes with three and four kids and trying to do digital, digital virtual learning um, for the very first time in their lives. Um, to all of those people, those people are, are my heroes right now. 
And I hope that everything we do in criminal justice and every public policy sphere that we happen to be fortunate enough to work in, I hope that all of it reflects a real desire to lift those people up um, who are really carrying our society through this really difficult crisis. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, gratitude and, and amazement, uh, you know, those are, are both key uh, feelings right now in terms of a lot of the folks that uh, we're, we're seeing that are, that are having to really step up those uh, essential workers that are, are really underscoring just how essential they are. Um, you mentioned uh, actually a, a couple of, uh, you know, key parts of the criminal justice system and how they're performing right now during uh, this crisis. And that, actually, let's go ahead and uh, kind of launch into a, a piecemeal analysis uh, of that. And so often in the criminal justice uh, arena, we, we think of the criminal justice system as a, as a map and you have kind of the starting line, which is, you know, uh, pre-arrest, it's engagement by law enforcement or other community resources, and, and the finish line is re-entry into society from from incarceration. As we uh, you know look at how each of these pieces of the criminal justice system, each of these steps has been impacted by COVID nineteen, uh, how they might exacerbate things, or how communities in Oklahoma are responding to to limit. Uh, the spread via these mechanisms. Let's jump in and like actually start at the start and talk about, um, you know, in your opinion, uh, in your analysis, what are you seeing in terms of how we are policing um, and and uh, enacting pretrial detention in the uh, age of COVID-19? We, we're hearing a lot about this phrase, um, own recognizance. Can you jump into some of that front-end criminal justice stuff and, and how it's been changed uh, by this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So as I, I think anyone um, who's sort of been following the news uh, to any extent knows, um, right now we are essentially seeing a complete shutdown of large portions of the Oklahoma court system. Um, the state Supreme Court has uh, essentially put most non-emergency court services on uh, hiatus until we get to until we get to May 15th um, and then sort of looking at the state um, to see what will continue after that. So what that has meant in Tulsa and Oklahoma County specifically um, and in most of the state is that low-level offenses, um, low-level misdemeanors, um, low-level municipal infraction, infractions, um, most failure-to-pay violations and those sorts of things are no longer sending people to jail, to the county and city jail. Now, there are people still going um, and ending up in those jails. We, by our analysis in Tulsa County, for example, in March, there was still about 81 um, failure to pay arrests that went into the Tulsa County Jail. Um, but we've seen in the past few weeks in April, those numbers really begin to fall um, pretty dramatically following our mayor in Tulsa's order to shelter in place um, across the city and kind of new directives to the Tulsa Police Department, um, as well as we've seen in Oklahoma City, um, similar directives to their police department, where they are essentially ticketing um, low-level municipal offenses um, and not taking those people to jails. Remarkably, um, as that's happening, we've been sort of keeping track of the crime reporting statistics. And while, you know, we see fluctuations in those numbers all the time, we are not seeing significant upticks in crime. In fact, um, obviously, for large pools of crime, we are seeing profound decreases um, in some cr criminal activity, especially violent crime um, across the state and in the large counties. Um, so, so far, that process seems to be working well. There are still legal visits happening to those who are being detained um, pre-trial. They're happening in a virtual basis. There's still bond hearings happening um, as well in a virtual basis um, where there are a dedicated group of prosecutors and public defenders um, and a dedicated group of judges who are allowed into the courthouse to do those proceedings. Um, and so far, that process seems to be working better than you might imagine it to work, um, considering the difficulty of the situation. Now, my big concern for most of the court system and for pretrial 
detention is really what are the long-term plans? Um, something that I think I should say up front, because it worries me that there are not enough public policy professionals and lawmakers who are saying this honestly to people. The COVID-19 crisis is a crisis that America and the world will have to confront for at least the next 12 to 18 months, by all likelihood. The president's CDC director said that um, they believe that this winter during flu season, we could see another larger scale outbreak of COVID-19 hit our nation again, hit Oklahoma again, which means pretrial detention the court system as we know it, even our state prison system are going to have to find ways to adapt to this new reality. Oklahoma County Jail is a perfect place to really look at. They have for the first time in about 20 years, the Oklahoma County Jail population has fallen below 1,500 inmates, which is a positive success um, that law enforcement and the Criminal Justice Coalition should really um, be happy to see that positive outcome. We had been incarcerating far too many people who were experiencing homelessness, um, who were experiencing mental health issues in crisis, um, who were experiencing truly just poverty in many cases. One of the judges there in Oklahoma County um, was very candid at a Senate hearing this summer just talking about the fact that at any given time, about a quarter of Oklahoma County jail's population is there because they're too poor to pay bail. They can't buy their freedom back from a bondsman. Um, so the fact that there are fewer people in Oklahoma County Jail and in Tulsa County Jail and in numerous jails across the state simply because they are too poor to buy their freedom from a bondsman, that's amazing. And we need to do what we can to make sure that we can continue this trend. Um, what can we do to ensure that no one in the United States of America and in our great state of Oklahoma is incarcerated simply because they're poor? Um, the criminalization of poverty not only produces terrible outcomes for families and, and especially largely communities of color and communities that live in rural Oklahoma, but the criminalization of poverty actually makes our whole state more poor. It actually hurts the court system, hurts judges and hurts police officers and hurts district attorneys and hurts the people in the system because it leaves our system chronically underfunded um, because we use these criminal fines and fees to try and fund um, the court system in our state. Yeah. And sorry to cut you off. No, because uh, I, I want to keep, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, we're starting kind of looking at how COVID-19 impacted different parts of the criminal justice system. But you, you said something very interesting um, as we're talking about policing and pretrial detention up front. So um, eventually, uh, just uh, foreshadowing for the listener, I want to talk about the realities of incarceration and some of the public health challenges uh, faced in these detention centers. But but staying in this this vein of the the future of the conversation surrounding pretrial detention, surrounding bail reform, uh, surrounding you know how we police these uh, populations you know that are historically you know just committing nonviolent offenses. You know you're you're being arrested because uh, you know you are poor and you don't have access to housing, or you're poor and you don't have access to um, you know proper mental health care and wraparound services, or you're 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 poor and you're just being picked up because you're poor and you couldn't pay your fines and fees. How do you envision, you know, because everybody's like, hey, let's not politicize this issue, but everything's political. How do we, how do you envision in a perfect world, the continuation of, of this conversation around bail reform and pretrial detention? Because we're actually seeing cities pilot a lot of things that those of us in the reform arena have been requesting for a long time. It just took a global pandemic for them to say we have to do something. So how do you envision the future of this conversation and, and what might some actions post-pandemic look like in that arena? Well, just to give you a sense of it, conservative states like Kentucky have recently released, commuted the sentence of hundreds and released more than a thousand inmates. Um, you've got states 
like Indiana working on plans to try and see if they can reduce their incarceral population by nearly a third in the next three years. Um, So you've got really serious plans happening. Mass incarceration has always been a threat to public health long before COVID-19. So there is a hepatitis C crisis in Oklahoma corrections right now. And it's been there for years and years and years. In 2012, there were fewer, there were a little more than a thousand people who had been found to have the um, chemical signs of, of being infected with hepatitis C. This year, we're looking at numbers that are well over 4,000 and a budget allocation, according to the budget appropriation last year, of more than $96 million just to treat those people. Because prisons and jails are terrible spaces to try and manage a disease. You cannot do the mitigation strategies that you and I and everyone now know so well, like social distancing. You might have access to hand sanitizer if you're truly lucky, like a private donation allowed to happen for many of our state prisons. Um, But you often don't have access to water, don't have access to an air supply um, that could be managed and regulated without a, a centralized HVAC system. You are often in a space where disease infection rates, according to the early analysis that we're seeing for a disease like COVID-19, those infection rates are so much higher. One study showed that in Cook County, Illinois, where one of the largest jail outbreaks in the nation has happened, those infection rates are as much as 28 times higher than the infection rates for the normal public. So, I think criminal justice reform is about to become not just the moral necessity and the rational budget conversation that our nation should have had. I think it's going to become a public health necessity as well as a budget necessity. As we begin to realize um, these massive budget shortfalls in counties and municipalities and states across the U.S., Spending, as Oklahoma does, $500 million a year on an incarceral system isn't going to be a rational reality as we are debating whether or not we want teachers to be furloughed, whether or not we want police and firefighters to be fired, um, whether or not we want a state retirement system. There's a real calculus that is about to have to be made. Every state in the U.S. will have to ask a simple question. Do you want retirement benefits um, for your public workers, for your police, for your firefighters, or do you want a mass incarceration system? Because you can't have both. You can't afford both. And with the increased public health threat beyond the budget crisis that we are all 100% in the middle of and going to have to face down directly over the next few weeks as our lawmakers make a budget, we are going to have to ask the question, how long can rural hospitals in Oklahoma survive the threat of rural prisons and rural jails, um, where most of our rural prison, uh, most of our prisons and jails happen to be in rural counties. How can they survive the threat of a COVID-19 outbreak? Um, because it's not just if you don't care about people with justice involvement, if you don't care about people in those prisons and jails, you have to ask yourself, what about the law enforcement staff, right? What about the sheriffs and the sheriff's deputies that take people to jails? What about the medical staff that has to deal with those jails? And what about the hospitals that are the nearest provider to these prisons and jails that will be overrun? It's already happening in counties across the United States. Um, in Joliet, Illinois, um, we are seeing respirate, or we are seeing ventilators being exhausted by a prison outbreak. An entire hospital running out of ventilators purely from prison staff and from individuals in that prison. Um, We're seeing a similar thing in Marion Marion County, Ohio, one of the largest COVID-19 outbreaks in the nation. And we will be seeing situations like this in Oklahoma. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Our prison system is 109% over capacity right now. And more than 20% of that population is over the age of 50. 
There are thousands of people, more than 4,000 people with hepatitis C, more than 3,000 people with diabetes, numerous individuals with respiratory illness and immune compromise. And we, we don't have to get deeply into the physical parameters of those spaces, but they are not spaces where social distancing is possible or where most of the mitigation strategies that keep us safe um, will be possible. And so every human being who is in a prison or jail in Oklahoma who doesn't need to be there for public safety is going to be to be an immense threat to the public health of our state in ways that I don't think the public is fully recognizing. Well, and and so you you touched on a on a number of things, and and up top, uh, I want to underscore uh, you brought up uh, the the general overall quality of access to just standard sanitary care procedures in these facilities. Um, you know, I was sharing a, a press release from the Oklahoma Department of Corrections that came out late March that you know said that uh, they were going to begin. Uh, free of charge, providing inmates with antibacterial hand soap is one of their measures. Um, and the response that I got from from this friend was, you mean they don't only have access to soap? And what a lot of people don't realize is that unless it's absolutely required, you don't get it in these facilities. You, If you want soap, you want hand sanitizer, you want anything, you you buy it, um, you know, or, or you get it somehow brought to you, you acquire it some other way. Um, one of the things, and actually, let's Let's pivot to this. You brought up the individuals who are uh, living with hepatitis in these facilities. They are living with diabetes in these facilities. They have a number of pre-existing conditions. Some of them are just advanced in age. These are all things that put them in uh, what's widely known as this this vulnerable population that is likely to really suffer at the hands of COVID-19. There's a, a lot of talk uh, about compassionate release. And that's another one of those phrases that we discussed earlier with own recognizance that maybe the public needs a little bit better uh, definition of what what does compassionate release look like? Who is it designed to serve? And, and, and how is it meant to actually make these detention facilities less susceptible to outbreaks? So, so in Oklahoma, the term, at least in the state prison population that we would use for compassionate release are there's aging parole, um, which is uh, something that was passed during the Fallon administration. And then there is medical parole, um, which is a statutory responsibility of the Department of Corrections. Um, Scott, Scott Crow and the director of medical health for the Department of Corrections can certify at any time any individuals who are believed to be at such heightened medical risk that they should not be incarcerated. Um, So there's sort of broad authority around that statute. And um, we are hopeful that the Department of Corrections is working on a list right now. Um, We are part of a coalition of justice partners that are all kind of working on that kind of compassionate release model. Um, And if that's something that your listeners are interested in, please have them reach out to Oklahoma Policy, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, of course, your organization, the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma. Just follow us online and kind of get connected to some of the outreach and advocacy work that we're doing around compassionate release. Um, What that is, is simply saying individuals who are no longer a threat to society. So this will all be nonviolent offenders by definition for the medical parole releases. And these are people who could be released in the next few months, in the next few days, depending on how much time is left on their offenses to serve. And these are individuals who could be released safely back to communities where the disease could be best managed. And so for compassionate release on the jail level, what we're talking about is public recognizance or own recognizance bond or personal recognizance or own recognizance bonds. And what that means is these are people who are allowed to leave jail pre-trial, so they have not been found guilty of a crime without having to pay money. And what a lot of people don't understand is even if you haven't been accused of a crime, you will often stay in jail for weeks, in some cases for months. Um, I've seen cases of years of people being in jail without trial for more than a year. 
without being released simply because they cannot afford to pay bond. So most of what we mean when we say compassionate release on the jail and the prison level is really finding those nonviolent offenders who are not a risk to the public, who could be safely released back to their communities so that we could decrease the overcrowding and make it more possible for those who, those law enforcement, those medical staff, those individuals who have to stay in prisons and in jails make it safer for those people to be there. It's one of those things that I think it's only a matter of time um, before we begin seeing more action on that. Um, Public advocacy is absolutely necessary. The public needs to call the governor's office. The public needs to contact their state senator, their state representative, um, and let them know they care about this issue and they care about making sure that our jails and prisons don't turn into epicenters in the COVID-19 crisis as they have become epicenters in multiple states in the United States. Um, And really saving as many lives as possible. I honestly think that the cost of mass incarceration on the budget side and on the human cost side um, have just exploded in our nation. And it's going to take our system a while to absorb that reality. But I think compassionate release is going to be necessary to have a criminal justice system um, that actually is able to function to any extent over the next 12 to 18 months. So we uh, saw earlier this month a article come out that talked about a number of releases happening uh, here in Oklahoma, signed off on by Governor Stitt in response to this pandemic. Uh, and the question I have for you, Damien, is is twofold. First, how, how many of those commutations were actually just pre-approved and, and waiting to be signed and, and now is just the right time to do it versus being in response to this pandemic. And, and then the other part of that is, you know, what are some of the common challenges these individuals uh, re-entering society are, are facing? We, we know that, you know, access to ID and community and, and transportation are all pretty common. Uh, how does a pandemic like this uniquely increase or lessen those challenges? Well, that's a great question. For the commutation that happened um, that the governor signed just a couple of weeks ago, essentially all 454 of those commutations had already been approved. So by the Pardon and Parole Board. After State Question 780 was made retroactive by our legislature, it created the capacity for ongoing relief to inmates who had simple drug possession and other low-level 780-related offenses. So those individuals were people from the December and March um, 780 retroactivity, or they call it the 1269. It was House Bill 1269, that act of law uh, retroactive. Um, Those were individuals who the Pardon and Parole Board had already cleared for commutation And some number of those individuals, about 111 um, is the number that I got from the Department of Corrections, were actually released um, last week. So the governor put out a press statement that was just um, that was just erroneous um, at first that suggested that 404 were going to be released for COVID-19 to decrease overcrowding. And while it it is wonderful that that hundred individuals were able to go home to their families and spend time hopefully with their loved ones, especially during the middle of this crisis, that number doesn't fundamentally reduce the overcrowding crisis in our prisons. We actually need to decarcerate a much larger number um, in order to really get prison overcrowding, especially in some of our most overcrowded facilities, taken care of. To the reentry question, those people who came home to their families, um, those individuals faced profound challenges, right? Imagine if they were to Tulsa County or Oklahoma County, um, specifically where some of the most stringent shelter at home orders are being enforced. So justice involved people have a higher unemployment rate than the normal Oklahoma population. 
those individuals tend to go to service sector jobs at restaurants and bars and fast food places. Those tend to be one of the few ways back into the workforce for large numbers of justice-involved Oklahomans. And so many of those jobs are closed. So many of those businesses aren't open and aren't doing consistent business. There's less construction work. There's much less um, contract work for building in homes and that sort of thing. Much less food service and obviously bar work. All of the types of professions that would provide easier access to employment for justice-involved Oklahomans, there's less access to that right now. So the number one thing that I think reentry individuals need is kind of the same thing they always need. They just need, um, there really needs to be a higher level of attention paid to that. And that's simply housing security, right? We need to make sure that everyone who's coming out of a jail or a prison um, right now in the state of Oklahoma has the ability to shelter in place safely. They have the ability to go somewhere other than a jail or a prison um, to eat meals, hopefully with their family, to be in a space where social distancing and mitigation strategies are possible and hopefully have access to some form of health care. Um, those are really the big pieces. So we've recommended, of course, um, in the healthcare space, Medicaid expansion um, would help about 20, 220,000 Oklahomans who do not currently have access to healthcare would get that access um, if the state simply expanded. And that has a huge criminal justice component to it. So states that have expanded Medicaid um, versus Oklahoma that has not. When jails and prisons have outbreaks and people go into the to the hospital system, if you're in a hospital for more than 24 hours, your Medicaid coverage kicks in. So the state um, doesn't have to reimburse or other individuals don't have to reimburse the cost of that medical care and that treatment. This is a really good strategy to defray um, some of the extra costs that is going to be a huge issue over the next few months. As we begin this state question 802 conversation, um, the Medicaid expansion ballot measure for next month, reentry, the group of individuals reentering from prison and the group of individuals who may suffer from COVID-19 symptoms that require hospitalizations in prison should be high on our minds. Uh, that's hundreds of thousands of Oklahomans who could end up not going to the doctor because they're afraid they won't have coverage and who could end up with terrible medical bills that aren't covered or the state be left defraying the cost of terrible medical bills that won't be covered simply because we haven't done what most of the states in the United States have done. Um, the other piece that really needs investment, there really needs to be more done um, in the world of food security um, throughout the state of Oklahoma. The number of food deserts that we have is just truly a scandal. And for those communities that are experiencing homelessness, we have to begin looking at strategies like um, what Illinois and New York are currently doing, where they're taking hotels and motels um, that currently have no customers and prisons and jails are taking a smaller amount of their funding than they would have to pay for someone to stay in a prison or jail. And they're simply paying for those individuals to stay in smaller numbers at motels and hotels that are lying vacant um, and they're having probation officers and support services help with the process of making sure mitigation strategies are used, that clients have access to virtual tools um, to meet with their attorneys as they might need to meet with them, to meet with social workers virtually. Um, they're, they're creating an infrastructure that is going to have to be an infrastructure that Oklahoma turns to for reentry services in the next few months if we hope to really beat this crisis. We're actually recording this at a really interesting point in time, and and it's you know it's so important to to underscore what you said because we we see a lot of the the challenges that individuals facing reentry normally face. It, it, it seems to just uplift the overall conversations around economic disparity and access to resources. Period for all Oklahomans. 
you know, we were having a, you know, ahead of this crisis, we were having a Medicaid expansion debate. We were having a lockdown debate. The, the legislature was, um, you know, uh, in, in full motion, uh, you know, this session. Uh, and then everything kind of uh, hit uh, a stopping point. And, and now, as we record this, we're starting to hear that uh, Governor Stitt is looking to reopen the state um, and mayors are maybe saying something else. Uh, and so I'm going to put you in an unfavorable position and ask an unfair question. So knowing that we're, we're about to encounter this tension between the reopening of the state versus what cities want to do, uh, what, if any, impact do you anticipate this potential partial reopening uh, having on the criminal justice system in Oklahoma, knowing that we actually have so much more work to do in terms of decarcerating uh, a large portion of the population. Is it just, this isn't just going to be business as usual, uh, right? Oh, no. Um, I just, I, I have great concerns. I just echo the concerns of the CDC. Um, I echo concerns that have been mentioned by President Trump um, about southern states opening too quickly. I echo the concerns of lots of the public health professionals that say now is not the time um, to reopen. In America right now, people are dying from complications from COVID-19 at a rate 28 times that of a bad flu day. Um, we believe that our COVID-19 numbers here in Oklahoma and across the nation are widely underreported because we aren't accounting for the spike in deaths that home statisticians are currently reporting to. Um, 93 flu deaths a day last year compared to an average of 2,600 a day for COVID-19. We actually had one of the most lethal days um, in the United States for COVID-19 just yesterday. So the idea that right now is the time to begin this process is just something that, again, I echo the sentiments of the president, of the CDC, of all the public health professionals that are urging more caution. And in the criminal justice space, I take that warning and I actually give it a higher order of magnitude. What we are seeing in Marion County, um, again, to go back to what is what probably the most infectious outbreak of COVID-19 in the nation. You're seeing more than 2,000 people infected um, with an infection that has gone, has blown out of proportion in less than three weeks. Um, we're, you are seeing hospitals overrun. You are seeing huge numbers of law enforcement and correction staff there and their families testing positive for this disease um, and going to the hospital and having to be hospitalized because of this. So to me, prisons and jails are a ticking time bomb in this crisis. If we open things up and we begin the process of the court system opening up and beginning to do that, I have no idea how that's going to function um, and be sustainable. I have no idea what evictions doc dockets look like, right? Um, I will go to the evictions docket here in Tulsa County um, fairly regularly, and there are hundreds of people in that space. Um, there are mass evictions where you will literally have a docket with 500 names on it um, and different plaintiffs who all have a right to be heard in court, who have to be able to um, speak to the attorneys who are speaking against them and speak to their claims and give specific statements. How is that going to happen? We, we do not have the virtual infrastructure to accomplish that. And that's in a civil litigation space. Imagine that in a misdemeanor docket in Oklahoma County or in Rogers County or in even even in our smaller counties and jails are terrified of admitting new people and prisons are terrified of receiving new people because every new admission is a possibility that the virus could enter your facility and a potential for a massive outbreak that overruns the rural hospital system. It will be critical for the survival of Oklahoma for our policymakers to begin to think of jails and prisons and courtrooms the way that we are thinking of cruise ships, right? In a cruise ship, you don't have space for the type of mitigation 
um, that we need to protect people. And no public administrator, no governor, no city councilor, no one would say to the public, get on a cruise liner right now especially the communities that are normally in the court system, right? Disproportionately people from communities of color where large amounts of mortality and morbidity in this crisis and hospitalization are centered. The Native American community seeing disproportionate death, the black community seeing disproportionate death, those people with pre-existing conditions in rural Oklahoma that are undertreated seeing disproportionate death rates. I can't imagine saying to any governor would say to the population of his state, please, those individuals get on a cruise ship right now. Um, If you wouldn't make that proclamation about a cruise ship, why in the world would you do that about prisons and jails, which are roughly analogous um, to the type of comorbidities and the type of problems that you would see in mitigating the risk of COVID-19 in those spaces? I share your concern. I share the order of magnitude you place it on uh, in terms of opening this up prematurely. I think we you know, are taking a vulnerable population and just making them more vulnerable by telling them it's time to get back to what it is you're doing. And that means engaging in the legal system. Uh, you, you brought up the legislature. And as we start to wind things down, uh, I want to ask because we, we had to, you know, pump the brakes on the legislative session in a lot of different capacities. There are a lot of things that you and I were looking at and working on uh, as a part of a coalition that just kind of fell off to the wayside. What is left for the legislature to do between now and what would normally be the end of session? Uh, and, and that bare minimum aside, what, what can they be doing to help stem the tide of this infection and to ensure that Oklahoma is in a, in a better place on the other side of this than actually how it went into it? Uh, That's a wonderful question, too. I think the most important priority is to make a budget um, that does not disrupt social and um, public services right as Oklahomans need them the most. Right. The largest unemployment numbers that we've seen in Oklahoma, probably in history, Um, some of the biggest revenue failures that you'll see, especially for county governments that are really going to take the revenue hit because they actually have a share of our gross production taxes. Um, They get a bit of that money. And so they will they will not be held um, immune from this crisis. So county jails are really going to be hurting Um, sheriffs associations are really going to be hurting. Um, We're going to see the district attorneys council um, and the district attorneys across the state are going to need investments um, to deal with some of the extra issues that they are going to be running into because of our our state's um, inefficient reliance on fines and fees and how badly that's damaged our courts. Um, even this year, um, Jerry Askins, who is the administrator of Oklahoma's court system, district court system and overall court system, um, said last week in testimony that we, we probably have the funding to be able to survive the rest of this year. Um, in place as long as the legislature keeps those holds to the amounts that have already sort of been allocated. But starting next year, we are looking at millions of dollars. Um, it could be as much as $6 million of revenue failure for the Oklahoma court system in the first quarter of next year. Um, so as the FY21 budget process moves forward, um, as they're closing the fiscal year 20, the fiscal year 20 budget, I think we need to begin looking at what parts of the court system don't serve public safety. Um, To my mind, fines and fees are a huge piece of that. We spend millions and millions of dollars in law enforcement um, money and resources collecting punitive fines and fees that are meant to pay for the court system. Now, the population of people who pays those fines and fees most will be even less likely to be able to pay those fines and fees, literally creating a cyclical failure structure um, for our court system where they have tried to take 
They've tried to collect these fines and fees from individuals for years. Um, but between 2012 and 2018, our Open Justice Oklahoma analysis at OK Policy has shown that we have um, lost $663,557,000 in assessed cost um, in court collection in just that time period. So more than that, that is more than the Department of Corrections budget. We've lost more than a Department of Corrections in two, from 2012 to 2018, relying on this fee for service model. Um, and unless we do something about that, we are not going to have the legal staff that we need to keep our for, our court staffed. Um, we're not going to have the indigent defenders or public defenders um, that we need to keep due process going. We're not going to have prosecutors. We're not going to have the law enforcement agents that we need to keep our streets safe um, from the the higher levels of crime that actually need to be dealt with in the court system. Those that 5% of offenses that are violent crimes and those sorts of things, they still need to be managed in some way. And the only way that we do that is if we break this Netflix model. Um, It's something I like to say all the time, funding our court system the same way we fund Netflix makes no sense. Um, using a user fee for service by our open justice analysis at OK Policy, that fee for service model hasn't raised any money since 2014. People have people are tapped out. They've paid into the system. Eighty percent of the criminal defendants um, who are paying into that system are declared indigent, meaning they couldn't even afford an attorney. So. In a normal environment, this funding mechanism doesn't work. In this environment, this funding mechanism is perverse in ways that I, I don't even want to deeply gameplay what happens when prosecutors and other individuals in the system are told, go find revenue for the offices that you're worried that you might have to shutter from the poorest Oklahomans who are in our criminal court system. Uh, when they're told that, I, I'm horrified to think of the outcomes because realize all that's doing is taking the cost and moving it from one ledger to another, right? We incarcerate people um, because they can't pay those court costs. We incarcerate people because they can't pay those fines and fees. Um, and when we do that, that incarceration cost isn't just magic money that comes out of the sky. That incarceration cost comes from the same tax coffers that are currently going to be experiencing massive budget revenues. Um, so I think now is the time for fines and fees reform. I think now is the time for community corrections models similar to what saved um, Texas billions of dollars between 2007 and 2017 when they closed eight prisons and released 10,000 people. Um, and they saw their crime rates continue to, to fall because they invested in solutions to crime um, and not just ways to uh, try and avenge crime. They actually invested in crime prevention strategies, which is the model um, that Oklahoma is going to be forced to have to look at. Our policymakers and our lawmakers need to start yesterday thinking about how they build a criminal justice system that isn't built on extracting its financing from the poorest people in the state. Right on. And, and I think that, and, and, you know, as we close out, one thing I, I definitely want to take an opportunity to impress upon our, our listeners is it, this is a terrible situation. There's no two ways about it. Um, you know, but one of the only silver linings to come out of it, well, there's a lot of silver linings to come out of it. And, you know, it's, it's seen, you know, our, our street outreach teams find ways to still serve, uh, unsheltered populations and, 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 you know, uh, ways for the nonprofit community to continue to provide services to individuals, which is which is great, and seeing the way that the criminal justice system has stepped up or reshaped itself uh, to maybe be a little more lenient and generous. You know, the, those are some of the silver linings. One of the other ones is, you know, centered on that reshaping of the criminal justice system. We're going to have an opportunity to help redefine. I, I truly believe what normal means in the criminal justice system when all is said and done. And it's absolutely imperative that you know our our listeners 
partners and that are allies in this have a seat at the table and that they get that seat at the table right now. And so, uh, you know, if you want to get involved with the Mental Health Association Oklahoma, you can go to mhaok.org forward slash advocate. I know Matt Gleason is going to help uh, get a lot of helpful information uh, in the notes to this episode and at the tail end of that. But but Damien, is, is we close out, uh, if folks want to get involved uh, through the Oklahoma Policy Institute or, or a number of other avenues, uh, where would you direct them if they want to get involved right now in helping reshape that new normal? Yeah, absolutely. OK Policy has a number of resources. Um, if you do not, please sign up. Go to oklahomapolicy.org um, and sign up for our In the Know newsletter, which will keep you up with all of the policy work that we're doing in education and criminal justice and healthcare, um, the work that we're doing with our partners um, in the coalitions, um, in all of these areas around childcare, um, around juvenile justice, which is an issue um, that will be hugely important moving forward um, around all of these issues that are so important to, to families, um, just to protecting our kids and making Making our, making our state better um, and making it a more equitable, um, safer place for all Oklahomans to be able to really pursue their dreams safely. Um, and please join and, and, and find ways to connect with Together Oklahoma as well, which is a grassroots advocacy arm of Oklahoma policy. Um, we do lots of work with Together Oklahoma to really highlight um, the individual stories of people who are suffering from the impacts of bad policy and racial disparities and disparities that exist between rural Oklahoma and urban Oklahoma. Um, Together Oklahoma is an amazing resource. Um, so yeah, Together Oklahoma and Oklahoma policy and following in the know are really, really great resources that we hope everyone in the state will find a way to connect themselves to. Okay, Jacob and Damien, thank you so much for being here on the Mental Health Download. This has been such an amazing conversation. And so as we do here at the end of every show, I'm going to ask each of you, including you, Jacob, which I know is a curveball, to share a bit of wisdom and then close this out saying, go do good things. So Jacob, take it away. Now is the time for you to actually seize the authority that you, uh, as a citizen, as an Oklahoman, have. You have an amazing voice. And despite the fact that we are indoors, despite the fact that we are isolated, now is the best time possible for you to make that voice heard. There's a number of ways via Facebook, Zoom, Twitter, uh, simply contacting uh, your elected officials that you can make yourself heard and, and demand the future that you want to see on the other side of this. And so with that said, go do good things. Fantastic. All right, Damien, you're up. So um, there are so many wonderful things um, that can happen right now because I don't believe this easily disseminated notion that we are we are at odds and conflict with each other. I think small business owners and people with pre-existing conditions and people who are scared um, of what the future will hold either in their employment um, or with this disease, I think we all have one common interest right now. And that's protecting our neighbors and doing what we can to lift each other up. Um, so I hope we'll lift up the incarcerated. I hope we'll lift up people experiencing homelessness. I hope we'll lift up our public health and our mental health providers and the people looking out for us in our groceries and our food pantries and just keeping us well. Um, I hope that we will lift up our country um, and, and our state and really begin to feel like neighbors. I, I hope that we can truly do what Mike Rose says we should do here. I hope we'll go do good things. COVID-19 has impacted the people Mental Health Association Oklahoma serves every day. People impacted by mental illness, homelessness, substance use, and justice involvement. And we continue to serve the most vulnerable in our communities, but that's coming with many unexpected expenses. We have established a COVID-19 relief fund to assist us in the emergency services we are providing. Help us serve our participants in need of rental assistance, mental health care, food and shelter, and other basic necessities. 
Go to Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Facebook page to contribute or visit our website at mhaok.org and hit the donate button at the top of the page.